0: This is Karen Kelly, and you're listening to An Appetite for Life. There's a great mix on this show, with various topics, amazing guests, and the occasional celebrity guests. So, my guest today is Dr. Baroness Newlove, broadcaster, public speaker, author, Tory peer, pro vice chancellor of the University of Bolton former Victims Commissioner for the UK and Wales and Deputy Speaker for the House of Lords. Wow, welcome Dr Baroness Helen Newlove, hello.
1: Hello, Helen will do though, I'm fine Helen with that. <laughs> what a
0: mouthful, oh, that's incredible, what a CV you've got. You should be so proud of yourself for the, the things that you do.
1: Well when somebody reads out is good but I think when I think anybody's really when you have to describe yourself We're all, we can't sell ourselves no. I think especially women isn't it we can't sell ourselves so thank you for the grand biog I'm very proud of what I've achieved in 11 years.
0: <laughs> Definitely oh, I was so lovely talking to you today Helen and congratulations on your book which is It Could Happen To You. So for our listeners I'm sure everybody remembers this story but for our listeners that's just Let's just recap and remind ourselves of that fateful day back in 2007 that completely changed your world.
1: Yes I mean it's 14 years ago which shows you how time flies Yeah. but it doesn't mean that it ever stops making you know thinking. So in 2007 it was a Friday summer's evening and we heard some noises on the road and as usual Gary was uh, I, you know I shouted down to Gary I said could you go and check what's going on I was upstairs because I wasn't very well so I was upstairs but he was down with Amy who was 12 at the time I think it was Britain's got talent which I, I really can't stand myself but there you go yeah um, so that's how I know he was we were doing that and it was a Friday night trying to relax and so he we went out and the reason why I asked him to go out is because our neighbor next door her baby uh, she had a young baby and her husband was working away in Scotland so she 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 had like a small garden digger out in in the front garden and we'd heard like glass being smashed. So that's why we asked him to go out. And I never, ever thought he would never enter that house, that house again. And so I I heard noises and rumbling, but I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I mean, because we had regular um, noises like this on a Friday and um, you just got used to it. We didn't like it, shall we say, but we got used to it. And so Gary went out and never came back in. And it was only when Amy came running in and shouted, screaming at me to, you know, you need to come out and ring for an ambulance that I didn't understand why I was ringing 999. And I did, uh, but I didn't know what to tell her. So I just presumed somebody had hurt themselves, like broken an arm or a leg and they needed an ambulance. And I just said to Amy, calm down, you know, everything will be fine. And now, you know, when I went out and I walked down the street, I totally get why she was where she was. Oh and goodness. So sorry, Helen. You didn't know it was for your husband at the time. No, 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 no. She came running into need to call an ambulance. And she was going on about Gary, you know, dad, dad, this. And I just thought, oh, maybe something's happened. And I lost something like that. So I had no idea. But she was that panicky. I was, I, it wasn't making sense. Yeah. So I was trying to calm her down, as a as mother does. And sadly, she... You know, she collapsed at the bottom of the stairs, and oh. our neighbour Amy, who's also called Amy, who Gary went out to see what's going on. She just said, "You need to go outside." And I still didn't. You know, you, you don't think anything. You just said "All oh, right, I need to go outside." And so, I, you know, I was kind of, I was hobbling because I've, I've injured my ankle, and um, and then all of a sudden, it was like walking out on the street, and I heard all this commotion. And I could see Zoe stood on her own because when Gary went out, uh, Danielle and Amy went out, because that's how we always used to, even the yeah, dog went out. Yeah, you go out,
0: out together, yeah.
1: And Zoe was coming over from Ikea. She had a, a job there. And she walked out as well to see what was going on. And um, it was just absolutely something like a film you see in a horror movie you know, or where, where the film around you goes slow and you're like treading jelly. And basically i say even today after 14 years zoe became the mother and i became the child that went to pieces i mean she was just a super well they all were danielle did cpr on because gary was on the ground um that's what i've got the vision of him lying on the ground and uh, not moving and then the neighbor's husband grabbed hold of me and said i wouldn't go over there you know we need to keep you over here an ambulance had been called for by the neighbors and uh, the next thing is the ambulance came and Zoe's boyfriend, Tom, who was a first aider for being a personal trainer, was doing CPR on Gary because there wasn't much of a pulse. And, um, and my will just, you know, I just went into panic, screaming, shouting. I, I don't really, really, really didn't realise what I was doing. No. And, and I just collapsed on the ground. So it, the ambulance came down the road and I went to get in the ambulance. And that's when it became even more serious because they they said, no, we need to shut the doors. He's, he'd gone. So they needed to sort him out. So you couldn't um, go with him at
0: that time?
1: No, I couldn't go with him. They, they kind of locked him out and said, we need to work on Gary. Well, there's a problem. Um, he's kind of flatlined. And of course, then I'm thinking, well, if I can't go with him. How do I know what's going on with him? And and this is like, you know, it felt like hours and it probably wasn't hours but it did feel very much like, oh my God. And I was phoning my family, you know, my mum bless her, my dad was in a care home My mum saying, you need to get around here. She doesn't drive and she's elderly. What, you know, you phone your mum. The fact is that, you know, it was, I couldn't get to him. That was the problem. Um, And just when I heard there was no pulse, that's when you kind of think. So it was just one of them nights where you just think, I just, you know, nothing was going right, but I wasn't it wasn't me that was there, if you get me. Yeah, I mean, it, was it wasn't real. No, and the neighbours were brilliant. And then when they were working on Gary in the ambulance, I, I was shouting, I don't know why I did, was, you know, um, you know, don't hurt him. You know, Gary had had stomach cancer at 32. And so he had to learn to eat again. He'd lost eight and a half stone in a week. And he he loved his family and he was getting over that. And, and he always said, nobody's having any organs. You know, they've done enough in my body at the moment. So I'm saying, don't hurt him, he's had this. And then the next thing it went off and then I couldn't go with him in the ambulance. So Tom, who was Zoe's boyfriend at the time, his car was parked uh, in the in in neighbor's drive. But because it was part of a crime scene, I had to wait for the inspector to give me permission to go to the hospital and that again felt like, this is ours, this is ours, this is ours. And so I just broke down and I said, you know, he's, he's going to be dead when I get there or something's happened, you know, it was just horrendous. And you would not wish it on your worst enemy, to be perfectly honest. Bless my mom when I got to the a um, and my mom was there with an elderly friend who drove her. Oh. And um, all I wanted was a glass of water and there was no water in the hospital, believe it or not. I, had to, I didn't want a can of Coke. I always remember there wasn't a glass of water. And um, so they made me wait, and then they asked me to go to the family room. And again, simpleton that I am in a sense, you watch Casualty and you know what that family room's about. And I'm crying, I'm saying, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there. You know, so they had to coax me and my mom and, and everything. And then my sister came, who was, a, who was then at the time, um, a theatre sister, so she knew exactly, and she demanded a glass of water, bless her. They, they said I could go and see Gary um, for about, you know, about a minute or so. He was that bad. And um, so my mum and I went in and it was just horrendous, you know, to look at him from, he was barefooted because it was a Sunday, a summer evening in short. So he hadn't gone out to do anything. He had ask, gone ask a simple question. And um, you looked in there, it was fine, but it's like you went in the lower, in, the higher the body, there was a footprint on Gary's forehead which has always been denied in court and uh, that there was not one there but it's not something you make up you know it it was there and he was in a terrible state so he was so delicate you know we had to leave straight away and it's when he gave me you know the rings and everything and I'm saying put them back on you know there's nothing wrong and from that that moment of going out to The Sunday when I had to turn his life support machine off, it's just something you wouldn't wish on anybody. He was too delicate to move. There was too much. uh, He was in his, um, he had a bleed on the brain. His brain was dangling like a piece of string and he was too delicate to move to the head injuries in, I think it was in Walton. So they kept him overnight. The staff were in tears. The staff were wonderful. And Gary was on a ventilator and he started to breathe against it, which gave me a bit of hope. But when you find out of consultants um, that that means nothing. Um, And then they moved, they did find a bed in intensive care the next day. And as they moved him, then he was bleeding again. Um, And so, you know, there was only one way this was going to go the saddest thing was he was in intensive care for his cancer so he was in the same side bed where he was and when he he was in there having his cancer he heard somebody crying and he thought it was me that the news was bad and so he, he wore glasses Gary and uh, he had no glasses on so he made me come right up to his face so he could test my eyes he wasn't crying
0: uh-huh. uh,
1: so that's the saddest thing is to watch what I knew I had to do and yeah. you know to, to hear consultants mention a crime scene which then I'm thinking uh, and the coroner I hadn't taken that into any account
0: it's so real isn't it I mean it's hard to it's hard to imagine even picture what you're going through what you went through back then because like you say you think you never think it's going to happen to you you're just a normal family doing your normal stuff on a Friday evening mm -hmm. hear a commotion outside and I remember it quite clearly and I can picture him as clear as day and I actually thought he was a teacher but he wasn't was he?
1: No Gary wasn't a teacher he worked in industrial heating um, ever since I met him actually industrial heating so he was a sales director he'd done it for many years and that photograph you have to give the police a photograph so that was the only one and then they get they leave you alone basically in a sense so Yeah. So it's still, you know, still when you see it, it's quite.
0: Yeah. um, And how old were your your daughters then, Helen, in 2007?
1: They were, Amy was 12, Danielle was 15 and Zoe was 18.
0: And at the time, did they have any reason to think that dad wasn't going to come home?
1: They didn't on the event, on the night of the attack. They... Uh, I didn't see them on the night of the attack. After I'd gone to the hospital, I should say, because obviously in the background the police were interviewing them. They taking the clothes off, were blood stained, and to me they're my heroines for doing that because I'm in the hospital and they're only young children. Yeah. So even though Zoe's 18, you know what they saw, and I didn't see the attack. I learned all these things afterwards. Um, I'm really proud of what they did, and, and they had many interviews. So. Amy wrote a letter which was printed in the media. Uh, right, <clears throat> excuse me. When I went back on the Saturday, because I wouldn't leave Gary's. This was a Friday night. At the attack on the Saturday. I didn't want to leave him, but the consultant said, "Go, just go home. I have a shower and come back." And when I went back to them, they're all asking questions. And then Amy wrote a letter to her dad because we were going on holiday on the following Wednesday. And she was saying like, you know, I'll push you around in a wheelchair and because he was a sun worshiper. And she would I'll put plenty of sun oil on, you know, just, we need you to come back and, you know, we'll look after you and all that and we'll look after mum. And so that was heartbreaking. And then when I went back to the hospital with this letter to read to Gary, which I did, that was when things had changed. The, the sister came to see me and said, you know, it's not good and you can either take a photograph to show the girls which some people do and that's fine but it's not what I would have would like to have done or you could you know you want to bring them in and I thought well you know that I'm not one to say no you can't come in and I didn't want them to remember the dad on the ground so I went back home and that's when I brought them in yeah and Zoe was angry, upset. She walked out and Amy and Danielle was just in bits. And Amy kept saying, why can't he talk? So I had to explain that he was, you know, he was sleeping with medication. But obviously, um, Zoe being the eldest knew exactly what was what. And uh, she just had to walk out. So, you know,
0: sitting down with your daughters and having that
1: conversation. But tell us about Gary. What was Gary like? Gary was, I met him when he was 20 and he was a fun person. I'm not saying he was the Pope and our Mother Teresa here, (laughs) but he was a fun person, very, you know, social person, people person. He, was, he liked music, he was a DJ, so he did a lot of weddings and everything. And if anybody sat down when the music was playing, he'd drag them up and, you know, he'd get on the floor, he oops upside your head, he'd do all, you know, Saturday night dancing. He was very much a, a jokey, dry whip person. And, um, you know, he was a family man. He loved his daughters. And sadly, you know, now I think about it, he used to say, can't wait till I get older, they can just pamper me, you know. And so he was just like anybody else, you know, working hard, trying the best for his family, um, just like any other family, really, in a sense. But yeah, he was, you know, they, they adored their dad and um you know we did everything together as a family you know we even went to the hairdressers together or the dentists because I hate dentists <laughs> me and, too I uh, know uh, you know I don't think it ever gets any better but when you've had a bad dentist when you're young you know it's like, I'm not going so we'd all <laughs> go together and so we were very close you know we, we did everything together in a sense so losing Gary wasn't just losing him the way we did it was a huge part of our lives that yes. you know that was going to change forever as well.
0: He will be so proud of what you've done with your life since then as a result of his death and you've started so many campaigns over the last 14 years so you've got the UK's bins drinking because at the time Tell us about the, the, the teenagers, because they did get life life sentences, didn't they? They
1: did. At one stage, there was 15 people around Gary, because what happened on the night as he went out, he asked them a simple question, who damaged the digger and who damaged my car? Because I'd heard them kicking my car, so you know, the kicking yeah. sounds, if you can describe it that way. And that was always, you know, for people listening... We always had trouble with antisocial behaviour on the road. You know, on a Friday night, there was full of cans, people urinating. They'd either break all the wing mirrors on every car up the road because there was a subway you could cut through. And, um, and I'd lived there since I was 18, so I, I couldn't understand why it was going like that. And then I moved back when I got married um, further on. But the, the fact is that what happened with Gary was asking one question and being attacked and punched and kicked to the ground. He was in the middle of another part of the gang, so he'd gone to ask a question, and because he, uh, because they didn't like it, they punched him in the face. But because Gary was quite fit, he did karate, and he was six foot two. He didn't really go down, and so Adam Swelling's at the back of him, uh, need him in the kid. You know, he need him in the back, and that's when he went on his knees, and that's when they continuously kicked him in the head and punched him. You know. That was, that's but These that have all was, been drinking heavily, haven't they? Yeah. These so that drinking. was that was why I thought, what you know, how could you do that? Yeah. And then I found out they were, you know, on skunk, drugs, vodka. They had just been on a total binge. And Gary was the third attack on the night. That's what people may forget that yeah. Gary was the third attack. So they built it up to, to Gary being the final act. Uh, they'd attacked two other young lags up previously, and so for me the alcohol. I mean, there's a lot of alcohol and drugs at the moment, but then it was more to do with alcohol, not just the drugs. And for me, it was about, is this the life that young people think is wonderful by getting drunk and doing things? And a mother of three daughters you know you don't want your daughter being this There's you know these consequences it's quite dangerous so I did get I did get involved and I'm still really involved with the alcohol companies with the way the police handled with you know with with alcohol finding out in Warrington that the Warrington town centre where the clubs were there was more police officers there than if you had a trouble outside police you know outside of there there was no police to come and help so I wanted to learn and understand what was going on. So, hence the campaigns about making our streets safer, uh, understanding antisocial behaviour, because we did have gang problem, um, uh, and you know so much so that before Gary's attack, we the, you had community meetings. I mean, there's still some now, but they were all big things then. And I went with my neighbour Eric and you know people the fences were being set on fire but we had the police the fire service but it was all coming out and youth workers saying well the youth you know the board and thinking well that's not an excuse to set somebody's fence on fire so it was quite a heated debate
0: yeah and they were doing and, uh, beer though weren't they it was so easy doing, for them so it to was, access
1: uh, yeah it was the cider you know white lightning it was so easy to go underage drinking was big yeah and also you know and sadly, we're still hearing it today. Is that staff have been intimidated by the young people, so they were fearful of not selling, not the, selling the alcohol yeah. to them. Uh, and you know, I've learned so much about it. But it was the access of cheap, side like white lightning um, that needed to be taken off the streets. And as I say, that you know, the, the whole point is that the police never tackled these 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 gangs on the street they were and then they were just moving these gangs along so it's like a chessboard really they weren't dealing with the root cause they were dealing with what they could see first base
0: and also you wanted to help improve support for victims of crime because at the time there wasn't a great support for you was there
1: no I my background I've always I always love working with the law so I've worked in the courts uh, before I had the girls Um, quite high-end bit of law uh, of that side I wanted to be a barrister but having three children and bad health it didn't get to that stage but I've always been fascinated and so knowing what happens in court because I I used to take evidence down in Manchester uh, magistrates courts years ago I thought oh you know this is what's going to happen And don't get me wrong, I've been abused when you're a professional, I've, I've been abused in Manchester court years ago, I was called all the names under the sun. But when you're a victim, it's completely without your family liaison officer, which is a police officer, which I have to say, were my rocks and my girls rocks getting through this 10 week court trial. The fact is that you have no, you have no nothing, you're told information how you must behave. This is what's going to happen. This is this. But actually you have no voice I gave a statement they wanted a statement off me but I didn't have to give evidence and my three girls had to give evidence so it was a case of Zoe was 18 and I think it's really people need to understand when in this I think for anybody the law in the land says when you're 18 you're an adult but, but, we're, they're, not know, 18, but they're not adults No. No. And she was damaged for what she'd seen. You yeah. know, she, they had to pull the dad's tongue out the mouth; he was choking on the blood. They had to do CPR. You know, they'd seen all the punching and all the kicking, so she wasn't. You know, so but she was treated like an adult. So the other two were seen as children. So they were separated by the system as well. So the uh, Danielle and Amy were video linked, so they would be in a in room in the back of the court, and Zoe was screened. Going to be screened at first, you wanted to face them, which that's a bit like a mother, you know. But I'm thinking, as a mother, you don't really want to face them because you don't know flashbacks or whatever. Yeah, and so you're kind of being led by information so much information to digest that you don't have any thinking space. So it's only afterwards when you look at these things why didn't you get this? Why couldn't we do that? and you're just on a kind of on a conveyor belt passing through so there's no family rooms in courts there is now in manchester but at the time in 2007 and 8 there wasn't there's they are Trial rooms, so they've got video links in, so they could be used for another trial. Which we were told that the toilets you know, they're not you got there's no separate toilets, so you could be kept away from the offender's family, but in a toilet, you could wow, be intimidated. You Yes, there's not the canteen is just one canteen, you know, and in the end, we had to bring our own food because it was quite costly, a 10 week court trial. But these are the things that could damage, you know, even a, a witness, you know coming home from a court trial you're not given any escort we did yeah but you and know they you could, think they of could another
0: fear yeah. with you know in, intervene couldn't they or threaten yeah. so you just i was
1: watching things i was going on and my family you know we were intimidated in court we were goaded in court we were goaded in the car park it was amazing how the law didn't affect these families and 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 yet they had the best legal teams that you could imagine, there was five accused in the dock. So each person had a QC, Queen's Council, had a junior, and then, of course, had a solicitor's team because the solicitor instructs the barrister. There's no contract. It comes from the solicitor. So you can imagine all that. And, you know, they were asked questions by all these five barristers. And it's it's like a theatre. Um And I could not say anything. I couldn't do anything. And, you know, my daughters went at nine o'clock in the morning to give evidence. And I couldn't give them a hug. I couldn't, you know, we had to have somebody, their their godmother who hadn't been in court, couldn't give them any information. Now, albeit, I understand that, but she's not going to sit and give them anything. She only wanted to pass a sandwich. So, you know, and they're traumatized. And I kept taking, and I just thought, this is inhumane. and the
0: thing is yeah when you need your family the most and you need that reassurance that hug anything yeah that's when they need it the most isn't it which
1: the offenders can do that because they can see their families in a break or whatever you know we had the the trial um adjourned for a, a dental appointment we had a we had to wait for the prison van to come it was two and a half hours late and there is under human rights, they're supposed to be given a break or a, a refreshment. But if they say no, they, they ask for the refreshment when they're in court. So it's delayed again. And so, it, you know, but in the meantime, my daughters were sitting in this room with an usher, not knowing what's going on. And of they're course, frightened this, to death, frightened to death. I upset, mean, you know, worry. police officers say today, you know, no matter how many years they've done it, it's still intimidating for them you know, when you go in quite nerve-wracking. Um, so so they have scarred the girls and myself because Zoe giving evidence always remembers uh, a piece of paper, which was a map uh, where it described Gary as Manet on the floor and then the offenders, the accused around them. And and she said, you know, when she came out, she just said, why couldn't they call him my dad? Um, and he was saying to one of them, was saying, you know, he was a bully, wasn't he? He was bullying them. And, uh, and she said, what, like, you're bullying me? And I could have high-fived him for that, yeah. you know, and everything. Yeah. But the, the thing that really got to me was when it came to giving Amy's evidence, who was only 12, it was about half, three, quarter to four. And the judge, uh, Lord justice, uh, Andrew Smith, who was very nice, very courteous, uh, said, you know, I will only take this now from her mum to see whether we take her evidence now or she's going to be too tired, do we come back? And I I thought, well, that was quite nice. But then on the other hand, if the defence, we were informed the defence could object to her coming home with me because I might give them, might talk to her. And that's the only time I would have been in contempt of court because there's no way they're going to separate my daughter overnight, knowing then she's got to go back the next day. But actually, uh, they didn't do it. Uh, I, the judge adjourned it till the next day. But it's still nerve wracking for her to come back the next day and see her an sister So it's very inhumane in a sense. Yeah. Very clinical. Um, so the things that I took in, I didn't have a vision to do anything else. I just thought this was absolutely disgraceful. Um, you know, the press have a box. The jury have a box, but the families don't. It's a public gallery and you can sit anywhere and do anything. Um, we were criticised when our police officer, these women behind us, were, were pulling apart evidence. And, and the, uh, the our family liaison said, do you mind, you know, this is the widow? And they went, well, who are you? And these were social workers behind us. For me, who's worked in a courtroom, very professional, to sit this other side, uh, it really opened my eyes. And, yeah. um, th- you know, afterwards, you know, things led to other things and campaigns. So this is the realism. And sadly, you know, we're still having these fights for, for victims and I'll never give up for them.
0: So have you managed to make any changes in, you know, what's different today that maybe wasn't happening back then in 2007?
1: Well, in to, today is different because we mentioned victims a lot more. In 2007, there was still the argument, Do you know, is it a witness, is it a victim? The downside is it's still not a victim's law, which I think that's the only thing. Well, I would not think, I do know that's the only way that the, the playing field will be balanced where victims have legal rights as well as offenders and that's not to say offenders will you know be losing some rights to gain for the victim gets these rights it's on a level playing field also the court designs in the courtrooms are not fantastic the acoustics and also you know there's not enough family rooms in our courts But for for me, it was being able to challenge the system as it is. But now we we do talk about victims. There is a victim's code, which there wasn't. There was a victim's charter, but now there's a victim's code, which is still not good enough because they're not legal rights, even though, as we'll discuss probably later on in my other roles, they say these are rights. They're not rights. They're just these, it's persuasive guidance, as the professionals say. These are just persuasive guidance. Um, there's nothing in law. And if there's nothing in law, you, know, you won't have the professionals arguing it because it's not in law. So mm-hmm. it's as simple as that.
0: Well, anybody would be in a great place to have you supporting them and your campaigns. You've got the binge drinking, stiffer sentences for serious crimes and improved support for victims of crime Uh, and also road traffic accidents where people have been killed, maybe by drunken drivers. But with all your hard work and nobody should have to go through what you've been through, Helen, but you turned it around and you were awarded a peerage in 2010 so Baroness Newlove, so how did that make you feel, and when did you hear about it, tell us a story.
1: Well yes, that was a really strange thing, I mean losing Gary, I got lots of support from, first and foremost from the people in Warrington, they they were great, and I then started on the political, because the political world, but I just see it as going, you know, I I rant on, and I moan, and I do all this, and, and everything, but the fact is that, then you get into the political stage of, so I met Gordon Brown and, and he was interested. And actually, Amy asked him a question, which would have been Gary's 50th birthday in Manchester. Uh, Michelle Ponty from Key 103 at the time, she, oh, yeah. she was part of it. And so um, it was about young people asking the prime minister at that stage, which was Gordon Brown. And um, Amy asked a question about sentencing, but she got quite upset. And I said, "Oh, is it? You know, is it too much?" And she just said, "No, he's the prime minister, Mum. I've just realised he's the <laughs> prime minister. You know, bless you You know what I mean?" So, you know, you've you kind of that was amazing. And Gordon Brown was very, you know, very nice. And then I met David Cameron, and I, you know, he was in opposition at the time, and we did a lot of conferences. And and that's you know, in the background, doing a lot of work in, in, with Warrington, and I was also doing documentaries looking at prisons and drinking for young people in families and then I got a call from David and I thought I, it was a voicemail and I just thought it probably wants me to speak at a conference that's fine I never thought and I just rang you back a couple of hours later and that's when he you know he said I think you'd be a great person to be in the house of lords you you say it as it is basically you're a voice for people victims and I think it'd be the right balance but I want you to think about it and well i, I had to think about it because I, I have to be honest i'm just thinking what does this mean um, i'm a working mum, you know it's like what do i do well i'm um, still on
0: the answer phone from david cameron and that's a message yeah. from david know, cameron I'm you thought, it david. Oh know yes, goodness, so. it's david oh yeah. my goodness it's david cameron
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah like, i know i'm sorry yeah i don't just thought it'd be a good thing in a few
0: hours when i'm ready yeah
1: yeah and um <laughs> (laughs) So and you can't tell anybody. You see, this is the point. You can't tell anybody. And so I did. I did have a word with my mom, really, you know, and she said, this is marvelous. You can't turn this down. And so I said, yes, it's wonderful. I'd love to be able to do it. But you cannot tell anybody because it has to go through another system. Um, which I made David laugh in the end because you, they do background checks. And I thought, oh, have I paid my gas bill? Have I paid my electric bill? What's my credit card like? Oh, my God, have I paid my mortgage? I think, oh, yeah. God, they've got a to screw we tonight. missed a payment. Yeah, we missed a payment. You know, we didn't, there wasn't any of them credit checks that we get all now that, that cost us a fortune to keep us on our toes. And um, you get a call from the leader of House of Lords, which was Lord Strathclyde at, the mo- at that time, and he started laughing when I said that to him about my bills. And he said, no, it's if you've made a, a donation of, say, about six million, a couple of million. And I just said to him, well, I've had a couple of million. My daughters will spend it on Jimmy Choo's. You know, you, you know, <laughs> there's no way to go to the Conservative Party. Um, and then you then you go to uh, the College of Arms, which is like Harry Potter. Now, that is that was wow. That was like something surreal because you have to choose your title. Well, you know. I've been a legal PA, I'm a mum, you know, what? I've never thought I've had to choose a title. So he was great to, to do that. And what so kind I'd, of to, choices did you have, though, when you say had to choose a title? Well, the title, you're going to be um, Baroness. It's uh, Baroness Newlove, but it's of what? So whether, I because I was born in Salford, didn't want to be, of, you know, part of Salford. Uh, you can't be Cheshire, because Cheshire's huge, you see. So he said, you have to be of a place and um so it's that kind of he helps you really when he says that because I just say to him I really don't understand this you're going to have to go through it with me and he did and that's when I I said Warrington uh and that was you know that was a bit strange and then that goes off to the um prime minister but which was Gordon at the time but then at the time he called a general election so it all gets halted so we were the longest ones, eight months, there's a lot of us who were, who were, I didn't know the other people, having to wait for the election, because it doesn't matter if David didn't win or anything, it's the Prime Minister whoever's in, they all go to him, because he does from his, his political party, each one of them, so the Lib Dems, Labour and Conservative, and then they go to the Queen, so it's, it depends nice. on the day, so even if Gordon got back in, it didn't mean you lose out. It just mean he could pick it up basically and take it to the Queen. So we had to wait for all that. But I found out on Sky News because the ticker tape at the bottom was telling me I was going to be a peer. And then, of course, I rang number 10 uh, and said to the colleague, there, I said, I've not said a th- I've not said a word. I've not said a word. And I had not had the green light. You said you have to wait for this lesson. I am thinking I'm going to be putting trees in already. <laughs> and, um, and he said, no, he said, it's fine. Don't you know, don't worry, but just don't say anything. So there was lots of press who said, oh, you know, Helen, you love said this. I hadn't. Um, and that's when it, that world again changed to a different level. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it was scary, really, because London is a tourist place for me. Manchester is my town and Warrington, you know. And so to go to the House of Lords on an induction was the, you're thinking, oh, my God, I felt like Hilda Ogden which a lot of youngsters haven't got a clear what I'm on about. But you know, that child lady with the rollers in, and I don't belong there. So it was
0: quite. It's amazing, though. So you're a deputy speaker in the House of Lords, and you took your seat in 2010 for the Conservative. Yes. And um, yeah, so tell us about your role. That must be such an honour anyway. But what's
1: life like being a crucial part of Parliament? Oh, so glamorous you put it. It's not that glamorous. (laughs) Well, of course. (laughs) I mean, the first thing, you know, you get a title and it's lovely, but it's, you know, I have to say, and, you know, this is what now with this levelling up and the North and South divide, you know, it really and you need a day job it's just a title you don't you know you need to pay bills whatever like that but it is grand and i have to say what was quite funny when i when you go and they call it an ennoblement when you're introduced into the house that's where you wear the robes and you've got two supporters and everybody watches it's one of them things in an assembly where you don't want anybody listening to you and um, you sign the writ for the Queen, and which is beautiful. I've got a beautiful um, red case with a writ from the Queen. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and so you get, oh, that's really nice. I call it ennoblement, really. It's when I go to schools and talk about this. It sounds like I'm being ennobled, you know, embalming, sorry, embalming. Get that. Then the, the, the system says that you go and take your seat. It's not a seat with your name. You just go and sit with, in the conservative because it's split up in the chamber, in the political parties. So when I did all that on my, uh, my ennoblement, when I was like a big girl, I thought, go in, I can do this. I can go in and just listen. Uh, I, uh, I goes and sits down and I looks up on these red benches and thinking the Queen's throne is on the wrong side to what it should have been. And of course, there's cameras everywhere, you know, I'm thinking, my daughters are going to kill themselves with laughter knowing there's my mother. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't know what to do because there's do's and don'ts. You know, it's like anything when you go to secondary school. Oh, my God. You know, and yeah, everything. it's all new, isn't it? Yeah, no, you know, just surreal, you real, really. So, so the fact is that I'm um, thinking how do I move and then the doorkeepers who are the staff in the House of Lords I cannot say enough about them came up and said my lady you're in the wrong seat and I went I know I'm in the wrong seat <laughs> but there's cameras everywhere and I don't know when to stand up because if you stand up at the wrong time to go order order you know and everybody zooms in on you. And he said, I'll give you the nudge. And then all of a sudden I got these little tiny notes coming down, this is the red benches, and said, Lady Newell whilst we'd love you to be, you know, in our party, which was the Labour seats I was on. Um, you are on the wrong seat. So, yeah, so I'm a Bridget Jones. That was my induction into the House <laughs> of Lords. So how often do you have
0: to attend at the House of Lords?
1: When you're in government, uh, which that was coalition first and now the conservative and obviously different prime ministers. They, you have to, more or less, You, it's called whipped business. So when you're in government, you really have to be there when it's, you know, in the chamber, you have to um, do your voting. The Whipping's to do with the voting. So whipping isn't, I always say to the, gir- the kids in school, it's not 50 shades of grey. It's uh, just a, te- a terminology politically where um you are told you know you need to be in we've got a one line whip a two line whip an extra strong two line whip and a three line whip and even if you're dying on a three line whip you've still got to go which is more like war time so yeah so it's quite interesting how it's gone around with the work
0: do you work on bills before they go to the house of commons is that how it works
1: it can be either way. We can A bill can either start in the House of Commons and then come to the House of Lords, right. or we can start a bill in the House of Lords and goes over to Commons. Uh, so it's quite interesting how that, that works, the dynamic. And of course, I've read about legislation, but I've never worked on legislation. So And I like to read and find out things and everything. So it's quite, it can be daunting
0: yeah. because
1: you're trying to grasp every bit of a bill which you can't do. You're, it's impossible. And if, it, if it's, you know, it, you, you're best doing bills that it's your area. So mine is justice, sentencing, all that kind of thing. And of course, you know, families is very important. But otherwise, you, you just drive yourself nuts. But it's good to listen, but you don't always have to take part in that. Yeah. So, and you can't take part in a debate until you make your maiden speech. Which is it's nice to get it over with, shall we just say? Because you're at you've got like seven minutes to talk about you, and I can sell ice to eskimos, but I can't talk about myself.
0: So have you not done? Is it maiden speech? Did you say? Have you not done it's your a
1: maiden? Speech yes, I have. Uh, I think Michael Heseltine time was the only period took nine years I think to take his. So you can vote, but you can't get involved in legislation if you don't do your maiden speech. Right. So at the time, I became the antisocial behaviour community champion. I worked in the Home Office and I made a report and that report they wanted to discuss and I said, oh, well, I can't do it because I've not done my maiden speech. And they went, ha ha. However, we've got a slot the week before, make your maiden, and then you can have a debate on your report, which it worked out very well but at the time it's like oh oh you know daunting like, oh no they've thrown
0: it at me yeah, yeah.
1: so it, it's, it's about explaining why you're there who you are and it's a way of introducing yourself to the house of lords
0: yeah i have one question though isn't the queen's speech first delivered to the house of lords
1: yes yeah the house yeah. She, well because basically she's like the boss in the yeah. house of lords and so the the reason why the, the commons comes to house of lords is because she doesn't enter she's you know she's highest in the the realm so yeah. that's why they all come to the house from the house of commons into the house of lords uh, and then she delivers the speech so that's the first time everybody will hear it on the throne in the house of lords and that is the only time we wear our robes out of courtesy you know the everyone you go thinks people live in these robes and um, you know it they are we don't have them we, you know, we have to hire them you know they're not cheap to hire just for a couple of hours and we pay them ourselves and so yes and the one thing when the house of commons does come into the house of lords they are really noisy i mean i've watched it for years on the tv and they're is when you're there but that apparently they have to the noisier the better because that's tradition I'm saying how rude, you know. A anyway, it will echo anyway, won't yeah. it? The room? Yeah, but the noisier the better. So it's tradition.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, it's been so lovely talking to you today, Helen. I could keep on talking to you. It's an interesting <laughs> subject. And it's been lovely to hear more about Gary as well and the girls. And once again, congratulations on your book, It Could Happen to You. So for our listeners, where can we buy this book? Where can we get hold of it?
1: Well, this book has been out since 2000, I think it was 2015. And yeah. so I am in the throes of going, ho- hopefully do another book of my journey politically and what I've gone in my roles as Victims Commissioner. And uh, so, but you can pick it up on Amazon, as I say, it's, uh, you know, my mum's the biggest fan, she's always ordering them, sending out to family and friends, but and I do get people writing in and thanking me for, you know, it's just giving a background of, it can happen to you, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, and um, your life does change, and I just believe for me now, the pathway is to make something positive out, something horrific, and help others um, and the system to be able to, to change things for them.
0: Definitely. Oh, well, congratulations once again. And it's been lovely talking to you. And I wish you all the best.
1: Well, oh, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Have a good time and a good day yourself.
0: You've been listening to an appetite for life, sponsored by Daybank House Dental Practice, where happiness starts with a smile. If you are interested in any of my packages or wish to be a guest on this show, then you can contact me via my social media pages, Karen Kelly Podcasts, or send an email to Carolinda Kelly at btinternet.com.